I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 25 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is one of my favorite singers and songwriters, Sam Phillips. I'm kind of in awe of her. There are some songs you enjoy in the background and others that dig beneath your skin and take up residence in your bones. Sam Phillips's music is in that latter category. There's something otherworldly about her talent, the way she mixes beauty and intimacy, melody and texture, yearning and wisdom. Her songs have a lasting power, gaining resonance from year to year. Holding On to the Earth, for example, has been embraced as an environmental anthem, despite not originally being intended that way. She started out as Leslie Phillips, a Christian pop artist who released four albums in the 1980s. The last of those, The Turning, was produced by T-Bone Burnett, who would become her longtime collaborator as well as her husband. When your life's about to start, God is watching you. When you have a shattered heart, God is watching you. By that point, Phillips was having doubts about the rigidity of the Christian music world. She wanted her music to express doubts and to ask difficult questions, not just to supply preordained answers. Plus, her label thought she sounded too sexy, though it couldn't pinpoint why. As she relates here, she had to call their bluff to win her freedom from the label. She chose her childhood nickname, Sam, as her new professional name. Never mind that Sam Phillips already was a pretty renowned rock and roll producer in Memphis. There was no risk of confusing the two, however. The first Sam Phillips album, The Indescribable Wow, with its smart 60s-inflected pop, came out in 1988 to rave reviews, including one from my late friend Jimmy Gutterman in Rolling Stone. Phillips is a major talent with great rewards to offer, wrote Jimmy, who introduced me to her music. Songs such as I Don't Wanna Fall In Love, I Don't Know How To Say Goodbye To You, and Holding On To The Earth proved his point. The follow-up, Cruel Inventions, brought even more colors to the canvas. Go Down features some of the most intoxicating harmonies I've ever heard on a rock record. While Lying manages to set desire and the fear of dying to a seductive groove. The culmination of this progression was Martinis and Bikinis, the brilliant 1994 album in which Phillips' songwriting reached a zenith while she and Burnett sculpted their most intricate, ear-tickling, sometimes Beatles-evoking arrangements. Baby I Can't Please You sports world music percussion and backwards instruments. All I Need Love is a transcendent pop song charged with spiritual and personal longing. I saw her perform at the Park West in Chicago that year and was struck by how still she stood while she sang. I asked her about that choice in our conversation. A year after Martinis and Bikinis, Phillips was playing the mute villain, Katja, in Die Hard with a Vengeance. She was really good too, why didn't she act more after this? Her next album, Omnipop, It's Only a Flesh Wound, Lamb Chop, felt like another detour, with much production and few harmonies. She has thoughts on how that one turned out. I don't wanna 
She pared everything down from then on, starting with the wonderful album, Fan Dance. She sings as if she's sitting next to you on the couch with maybe a couple of other musicians in the room. She takes a similar approach on A Boot and a Shoe. I consider that album's closer, One Day Late, to be the unofficial theme song of the pandemic's early days. Around that time, her marriage to Burnett was ending, and since 2008's Don't Do Anything, Phillips has been producing her own albums while maintaining that high quality. Her song, Sister Rosetta Goes Before Us, was a standout on Alison Krauss and Robert Plant's Grammy-winning 2007 album, Raising Sand. She also scored the TV series Gilmore Girls and has continued recording albums, including one currently in the works. Sam Phillips is clear-headed and down-to-earth as she discusses the wildly varied stages of her life and career, even as she continues to seek a euphoric quality in what she creates. She still believes in the power of melodies and the album as an art form. Where is she and what is she doing when her music comes to her? Do her songs start with words, a tune, or an idea? Does she have an instrument in hand? Is she still searching for what she sought when she was younger? The answers may be elusive, but there's much beauty to be found along the way. Please enjoy Sam Phillips on Carol Pop. It's easy to change your name, but hard to change your life. Thank you for doing this, by the way. I really appreciate it. I've had like your songs in my head like the last week. So this is cool. Oh, that's nice. That's nice that you listened. And um, I I like your style. I listened to the Kathy Valentine oh, um, cool. podcast, which I thought was really fantastic. I love the Go-Go's and she was fantastic. So, and um, I think you're... You're a natural podcaster. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Are you always working on something or do you sort of work when you have to work? I work all kinds of different ways. I work um, by myself at home in a little room, um, in the car, <laughs> um, in my head, in the middle of the night. That's I don't like that one, but yeah, sometimes at three in the morning, there's there are songs or, or thoughts or um, concepts rattling around in my head or sometimes dreams when you have that three in the morning song coming to you do you run to the studio and record it or do you like sing it into your phone or do you make sure you capture it i have done that but it's not usually melodies it's usually a, um, an image from a dream or some kind of um you know lyric that i'll write down so do your songs usually start with words or images as opposed to you know hooks melodies no i i usually it's um melodies are with me all the time and I and I'm trying to decipher what the melody is saying I, I always feel like that's a it's a very difficult I'm very slow I'm a very slow writer as a result of that if I'm not collaborating with someone else which I don't do very often um, I did 
collaborate on this last record that I did, Warland Sticks, with um, a drummer, Jay Bellarose, who I've been working with for about 20 years. And he, uh, it was interesting doing it that way. He would play a, a drum performance, and I actually would hear song ideas, lyrics in the rhythm. And I, I realized mm. through that experience that um, I'm a rhythmic writer as well. So the, the, um, the lyrics have to have a certain cadence and that influences. So, so a lot of times there's a, a feel that I'll start with before I even start thinking of a melody or, or a lyric. I think it's important to do it all different kinds of ways. I think you just keep trying things, see what works for you, you know, in terms of writing. There's no right or wrong. And in fact, the only, um, the only pointers I ever got, the only songwriting education, I guess you'd say, I ever got was when I was a high school kid and I went to a songwriting seminar by a guy named Al Kasha, who had won an Academy Award for a song in a movie in the 70s. And, um, and all, it, it was actually fascinating and a really great beginning because all we did was listen to, um, you know, what we call standards, uh, you know, maybe the the first half of the 20th century, you know, uh, hit songs from that era and um, listen to them and kind of look under the hood, take them apart. And um, that was great. But other than that, he sent us off with a rhyming dictionary and a thesaurus and said, good luck. <laughs> so I had to figure it out myself. But I think that really is what it's all about with songwriting. I think it's, it's finding out what you love and paying close attention to what you love in other songs and other compositions and songwriters and composers and then um you know diving in is there a certain type of song that's kind of under your skin more than others or kind of an era that's the era that just kind of comes to me as almost sort of an unconscious reflex at this point i think that's a nice way of saying what are your influences and i the thing that i always believe about influences is because that question is tricky and there's always a temptation to say my influences were whatever the coolest thing you can think of is or sometimes the most obscure thing but i in reality i think it's what grows up around us what we grow up around what we grow up hearing um you know for instance i think there are a lot of probably tv commercials in my youth there certainly were the sherman brothers and all their fabulous disney um soundtracks you know the jungle book and and um all of those Mary Poppins, all that era of of um, Disney movies, um, and then you know just a lot of other things, things you learn in school, things on my parents in my parents' record collection, as well as you know by the time I got to pop radio and and listening, you know, as a preteen or a teenager, you know, all that all that information. But um, I, I don't know if we can help it. We, it, we can certainly right, right. steer towards it once we and and interestingly the the thing that was missing as I was growing up I had n there was no country music um, and um, there was no blues so um, I was really excited to find that later on in my life and and maybe those those things influence you more when you are actually at a the choosing stage of your influencing yeah I was thinking I guess the distinction I would have made or with the you know is that tell me about your influences as opposed to however i clumsily asked it is is that I, like if someone asked me like well, what are your influences i'd be like well like the beatles and you know rem and jackson five or what but it's like there's sort of the the stuff that's kind of in your bones that you're not even aware of it and i think that's what you're talking about with like the commercials or something like that or you know it's like 
going to synagogue and hearing the weird sort of minor chord changes or just the fact that I grew up, you know, in an era where, you know, the AM radio was very diverse, but there were a lot of big choruses. Whereas like someone who is a teenager right now isn't used to choruses because the hits don't have choruses. And so it's sort of like, but I, but I hear like even, you know, in some of your music, even this kind of older sort of, I'm going to totally misuse this, but like sort of Brechtian sort of like old sort of music hall kind of things as well. And, and they've, they've somehow, somehow that's in you, even if you don't not, you know, it's not a conscious thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I'm very attracted to melodies. That's um, lyrics draw me in as well. I love all the, you know, confessional country writers and, you know, um, but by the same token, a lot of the, you know, some of the genres that are more lyric-based, um, folk or Americana or, or a lot of those genres, um, when there's no melody, it's, unless the lyrics are awfully, awfully good, you know, I'm gonna, uh, you know, drift a little bit. I really, the melody, to me, melody is the ecstatic part of music. Mm. And if you can ride on that melody, with your lyrics, that is that can be really powerful, but but melody is always going to be first. So, and and perhaps I did learn that in growing up in the same era where I heard a lot of, you know, choruses and and simple melodies, but but strong, memorable melodies. And I remember the time. I remember maybe in the '90s, sometimes when um, things got a lot less melodic, wasn't as cool to have melodies, but. Um, but I don't know. I think people. I think there are a lot of people out there like me. I think they. Um, I think we like music for a lot of different reasons too. It's a lot. It's like a, it, music's like a kind of a wardrobe. You know, I, I I love the kind of music that you that you kind of put on like a pair of jeans and they're comfort. It's comfortable and it's um, it's got a vibe. It's got an atmosphere, but it's not going to um, demand too much of your attention. But then there are other things that are um, the avant-garde you know, that can demand a lot of attention or a very strong melody or, um, you know, a, a very complicated um, composition or feel. So it's just that there's so many different ways to go. And I, I love that um, we're being exposed to that, to, to more and more influences. It's an amazing time, I think, especially to be somebody who's starting out in music. And um, but on the uh, by the same token, it's a little bit like um, everything else, all the information co coming at us. You know, we, we do have to find those people. You, you have to be your own DJ or find a DJ who will sort out the bits that might mean the most to you, you know. Um, and that's, that's not easy when there's, when there's too much information. It's trying to find your style and your voice and your vision um, sometimes can be difficult. Do you f tend to find your melodies when you're sitting at an instrument or are you trying to sort of come up with the melody when you come up with the melody or is it more like they'll come to you when you're taking a walk or swimming or doing something else? Oftentimes, um, you know, walking is one of the greatest, I think, traditions of most of the, you know, a lot of writers, not songwriters, um, but so much, but but I find it it really inspiring. I, uh, a lot of times I walk to music, you know, I'm listening to music when I walk, but other times, or driving in the car, a lot of times things will come to me there, you know, it, it probably just turning off um, the trying part of your brain and not caring and not trying and, and, you know, those things 
aren't so scared of your grabbing them. They'll just come to you. <laughs> Will you construct like an entire song in your head before you start working it out on an instrument? Or do you sort of work it out on an instrument and like, well, here's the chorus, here's the bridge. And then, then I need to, I have a phrase, but I need to fill out the, the words to this one. All the different ways. I mean, sometimes complete songs have, have come to me. Um, other times, a couple of sections, sometimes um, just one musical idea, and then I have to go over. I, I think, um, I just, I'm happy whenever anything shows up, and then then I think it's time to go to work. You know, then it's time to go to work and, and figure out uh, what's good, what isn't, what it needs. You know, I'm, I have chosen to be as brief as I can in a lot of my music. Um, I, I just, you know, feel that um, there's a lot of, with the invention of the CD, people went, oh, wow, now I can do a, you know, I can do a song that's 45 minutes. And I'm not. Well, an, sure. an album's got like 72 minutes long, and then you're like, oh, no, it's too yeah, much. Yeah, I'm not sure that was a good idea, but, you know, there's not a lot of editing going on. I strongly believe in editing, but um, I don't, that's just me. I, that's, that's my vision. I like to be kind of short and sweet and try to say a whole lot in, or as much as I can in a small amount of time. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people have sort of come around to that, and now vinyl's back, so it's kind of making people edit a little bit more. Again. My friends laugh at me because I, all through the non-vinyl period, I just kept, you know, doing albums that clocked in right at about, you know, 30, 30 and change, <laughs> 30 minutes and change. So, I don't know. It just, uh, that's, that's what I got used to, that kind of flow, and that never left me that never went away yeah you have good company in that i think radiohead always does that except for maybe hail to the thief spoons always like 38 minutes or something like that yeah um so when you when you write songs are you thinking of the arrangement at the time too or is that does that come when you're actually recording more more and more i think that uh when i started um or my experience scoring the gilmore girls um having to use my my music not my words um, I, a lot more melodies would occur to me more as I was writing in terms of a, a figure that would go um, in the intro or in between sections or maybe the chorus is just a, a figure, you know, a, a musical figure rather than a lyric. So um, it was nice to take a break from writing lyrics and, and just being a singer-songwriter. It was nice to move to composing, um, especially the way I was allowed to do it, because I was allowed to, to use my voice and um, sing and, and do harmonies and sort of, uh, you know, but again, I had to be super short, really, you right. know, it's micro music because of right. course, you know, you, in television, there's not a whole lot of time. And usually it's a transition from one scene or one emotion to another. And so it's, it's challenging and so much fun. I think it's, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, Amy Sherman Palladino really gave me the freedom to, um, to do whatever I wanted, which was, you know, in keeping with, you know, our, our little, character which was the voice the voices in Lorelai and Rory's the, the main character's heads was, was that something you imagined doing early in your career that you'd be scoring television or no no in fact I think I was so busy the whole of the 90s and um, traveling and writing and singing I don't remember any I don't think I watched television I, I watched some movies but I didn't watch TV shows at all. So that completely took me off guard when she asked me to do a, a show because I, I thought back and I thought, my God, I, the only TV music I really even 
am remembering from the recent past is like Twin Peaks, you know, which was completely right, right. not right for the Gilmore Girls. So I had to, you know, it, but she said, I want your voice in it. Um, and we figured out no lyrics because the dialogue was fast and furious, simple instrumentation. We tried a few different bits and pieces. Um, I really envy uh, Mumford uh, with his Ted Lasso, uh, beautiful Ted Lasso soundtrack, because he's got a lot of beautiful stringed instruments in there that we kind of tried on the Gilmore Girls, but it was a little too um, maybe country or, or twang for them at the time. Right. But, um, but I think he's done such a fabulous job. I, I it it reminds me a little bit of what I was doing on the Gilmore Girls, and it's just I think it's just perfect for for that series. Plus, he's got that big yeah in there. I love that. Yeah, is that an old song of his? I I didn't I don't know what that, but I love that. I love the title. It's great. Yeah, his voice is wonderful. And you you've been scoring marvelous Mrs. Maisel also. Um, you know when they were trying to find the the musical direction in the very beginning, uh, my husband Eric Gorfain, um, who's a string arranger and violinist, um, he. He did some, we both collaborated on, on some cues for them in the very beginning because um, I think they weren't sure of the balance of, of um, you know, as needle drops, as they say, you know, already existing recordings from that era and score. Um, but I, I think they, they decided to go more with, you know, the songs of the era and those beautiful needle drops. They, and I think they did a brilliant job, Amy and, and Dan, Palladino and Amy Sherman Palladino that have such beautiful musical taste that um, I'm delighted in what they chose because they really are exposing a whole, well, a few generations to some of the Broadway and, and some of the, the standards and, and music from that era that um, not everybody knows. I mean, I've, there have been other, there have been um, songs that they've used that I never heard or versions of songs that I hadn't heard of before. So. Um, it was really fun to be involved in the very beginning, but I, you know, I think in the end, you know, they didn't really need our help. They had Frank Sinatra, they had Blossom Deary, they had, you know, all <laughs> these incredible um, songs. When you did The Turning, that was your fourth Leslie Phillips album, and that was considered in the Christian pop world and then there was the indescribable wow which was your first sam phillips record what was what was sort of the transition there musically on how you approached everything from leslie to sam there was t-bone burnett and um the um i you know t-bone i will always love and adore him he I wouldn't say that he opened doors for me. I had to do that myself, but he opened windows for me. Um, so he had so much a knowledge of country and blues um, that, that I was saying before that I really grew up. I grew up with you know more jazz and show tunes and you know pop radio. Um, but I got an education, you know, through him on, uh, you know, with country. I, you know, I knew rockabilly and rock and roll, but but not really some of the deeper country music and certainly not the blues and was just absolutely thrilled and inspired to to hear all that kind of music to really um, learn about that kind of music and also at the time he was involved with the the kind of the la music scene which you know it was maria mckee and and um x and they were doing a lot of you know the end of the 80s it was a lot of that country punk 
music that was really beautiful. Right. And he was kind of a, he was around the edges of that and had just done his own um, country record, you know, live to tape. Um, Costello's King of America had some of that country stuff going on and that was 86. Oh, right. Yeah. So right around, yeah, that was the year that I, that I met T-Bone. And, um, and so that, being inspired by a whole different world, um, because the, the the gospel music is it's complicated. I, I do want to write some of my my story down because it's a it's when I got involved in gospel music, Christian music as a kid. You know, it was a very different world. Um, it was people that were kind of coming out of the counterculture. Um, coming into the churches trying to figure out what was relevant to their lives, really more in, in a spiritual pursuit. And growing up, I was kind of a weird kid, too. I, I wasn't interested in, in drugs, in experimenting with that, but I was interested in experimenting with spirituality and uh, trying to find, trying to make my life better, um, myself better, and went through some really kind of powerful and interesting experiences. Um, but as I wove through this weird hybrid of um, church and show business, <laughs> it, um, I became disillusioned really quickly. Um, there were a lot of wonderful people that I met that are still great, but there are a lot of crazy characters. But yeah, it was a beautiful time. I loved um, also drawing a line between um, my early life and, and spirituality and um, the music I had made and, and going forward, making that line in the sand with a name change. You know, I, I, there was, like, I think, a Japanese poet that used to change his name, I think, with every book of poetry that he put out, which is interesting. Um, but it, it, it was a beautiful new time of the world opening for me. Yeah, I'd seen an interview you did with Image Journal and you were saying that you were getting feedback from the record company like, this song sounds too sexy and we don't know why, but <laughs> you need yeah. to change it. Yeah, yeah that's why I'll have to <clears throat> lovingly write write that book someday. No, in fact, the, the, the story is um, when I decided that I wanted to leave, um, the the my wanted to get out of my contract wanted to leave that record company that christian record company they said well no we're not going to let you go you owe us a few more records and i said okay well my contract says that i can't do anything illegal or immoral and i've slept with somebody that i wasn't married to so i'll tell everybody if that's the way it has to be and they said okay you're out of your contract <laughs> <laughs> so Kind of, that's a true story. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't want to go through that. And that's the funny part, I think, in, in that, uh, at that time, and possibly even now, any kind of sexual indiscretion is maybe worse than anything else you could do. I mean, they can, seems like you can run off with the, all the church's money, but if you sleep with someone you're not supposed to, then, you know, that's, that's a big problem. And you're, you're you're over. You're canceled. And T-Bone had had produced the Turning, and then produced the next you know several albums as Sam Phillips. Um, and the Turning sounds like it's kind of this turning point because you could there could have been a Sam Phillips record. There's a little more of that, but of the sort of the faith aspect. But you're sort of questioning these these you're, you're questioning things in a way that aren't often questioned in that genre, as far as I understand at least. Um, so yeah. so then 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 indescribable why wow was more like this full break and and it's still a lot of the same players but musically you have a little you have a lot more of a sort of vocabulary to choose from i guess well and you know i was in my early 20s and i had been writing 
I started writing songs when I was 14. And so by my early 20s, I wanted to the freedom to grow as an artist. And, and as you just said, I didn't really have that freedom within the gospel music confines. There was just a lot of very weird judgments um, that went into their marketing <laughs> because um, basically there was a, an aspect of it that where you had to tell people over and over again what they believed so that they felt, I, I, well, I don't know, that they felt good about it or they felt safe or they felt trust for you. And I kind of felt the opposite. I, I felt to, um, to earn my audience's trust, I had to start from scratch, start all over again, and um, and really try to be honest with myself and my spirituality and, and try to uh, become a better writer, express these different um, aspects of life and, and my findings um, and, and not rely on this other thing. Kind of, I guess like in pop music where you just, you know, just write a song about you know, how sexy something is, whatever the sort of, you know, the baseline is I wanted to um, to explore. I really wanted to become a good songwriter, and I still do. I'm still working at that 30 years later, 35 years later. Um, Was there a first song that you, like, that you consider that this is the first Sam Phillips song? Yeah, I guess I, I would say, um, I don't know how to say goodbye to you was my, maybe the first one. And that, of course... That was written after my very first meeting with T-Bone as he drove away. We were at the parking lot. He got into his car. I got into mine, and I just that I just wrote that. Um, you know, so yeah, that would be the maybe the first Sam. But you know, um, Leslie's in there too. It's just she's a, a little girl. I, I, I think Sam maybe is a little bit more grown up. I, I probably need another name too, because I think there's a, there's a third and maybe fourth phase of my writing and, you know, but I don't know. I'm just going to stick with Sam. It's Sam. So Sam was a nickname of yours when you were younger? Yes. We had a lot of nicknames in our house. I always joked that the dog didn't even know what to come to because it had a, everybody had a different name for the dog. <laughs> so, but I had a lot of different names growing up. Yeah. I'm sorry I have to ask this, but did you, did you get like a lot of the, the Elvis producer thing and did you get tired of it? No. I mean, it, um, he he was a character. I actually saw him speak once yeah. at at a, a tech conference, and he was fantastic. Talk about southern preachers. He was, you know, from some other planet. He was wonderful. I met his son Knox, who was lovely. Um, there are other Sam Phillipses floating out ar around there too. There was a I think a porn person, and and I think there's another uh, musician who's uh, a man. I think, but I don't know. There are a lot of Sam Phillipses, and so in a funny way, it's been. It's been nice to be in the crowd of the Sams. <laughs> when you wrote and recorded "Trying to Hold On to the Earth," did you did you think, "Oh, this is going to be um, a song that lasts for decades"? You know, did it feel like a classic to you? Because it feels like a classic at this point. Oh, thank you. Um, and, I sh and I should have given it the correct title, which is "Holding On to the Earth." But uh, the anyway, Earth. sorry about that. Well, I didn't. It it wasn't written with the the um, ecological implications that I think it, it has in it. Um, it was more about trying to figure out reality, you know, and um, but but since then it seems like that that's been an ongoing thing. Black Sky, a song that I wrote um, a few years later, you know, was about the environmental um, problems that we have. And then uh, the, the last record that I 
released World on Sticks, had a lot of um, American Landfill Kings was about that. Um, Tears in the Ground is talking about that real deep sadness for the, um, you know, the wilderness, the natural world receding because of our excesses. Well, I, a part of it is also just sort of wondering, like, when you come up with a song like that, if you sort of think, oh, that's like, that's the one, or that's one of the ones, like that one's, that one is sort of a notch above in terms of whatever it is that, that makes a song memorable. Oh, I see. Aside from, aside from the content of it, which is also because it has this resonance as a sort of song about the environment and the earth and everything else. Yeah, it, it's always a strange relationship because I'm also the singer um, as well as the songwriter. And the, the songwriter and the singer in me don't always get along. I, the songwriter gets very frustrated with the singer because, you know, my God, we have some amazing voices out there today. I feel like, do we have better singers in general than we did you know, 40, 50 years ago, I don't know, just so many talented people. Um, but I, I I wish that, I think if other people had sung them, um, I might like some of my songs better. Um, but I think, I think one of the songs that, that struck me as just kind of capturing me was Reflecting Light, which is funny because it was a, it's definitely more of an esoteric song about uh, spirituality, I guess I would say, and and uh, Amy Sherman Palladino used it as a love song uh, in the Gilmore Girls, which a lot of people mm -hmm. have now had it played at their weddings and had the first dance with their groom or their father. Or, or um, so it's interesting, and and that is one thing that I I've really tried to do um, with my songwriting is to to make it as personal as I can, but also to leave the song open uh, for the listener, so the listener can bring his or her experience into the song and and um, be inspired or, or imagine or just just to, to be able to let them enter the song and, and hear it and experience it. Alison Krauss and Robert Plant had recorded your uh, Sister Rosetta Goes Before Us. And I think that came out a year before your version did. So yeah. so you got to hear someone else doing that one. Well, the, the interesting thing about that was they, they decided to do the song and um, T-Bone was in a session with them and they were trying to figure that out. Uh, Mark Rebo was the guitarist and I think he was trying to figure out a, a feel that would, well, trying to figure out my feel because they had my recording of it that came out later. And it wasn't working, wasn't working. And um, T-Bone had to leave and meet me for a, a program uh, at our daughter's school that was, I think she was in uh, maybe third grade at the time, and it was a, a little holiday program where they performed holiday songs and um, and they had some really beautiful, just quiet instruments. And it was so beautiful and lovely. And he, I think he, something clicked in T-Bone's head and he went back to the studio and picked up a guitar and started doing that feel that ended up on the record, mm -hmm. um, inspired by this beautiful children's um, presentation and and then that became the you know and I, I love their version so different from mine um, I just thought it was lovely and of course I what a singer what a couple of singers to sing your song I can't there aren't that many people who could have sung that song that way and I Alison Krauss is one of my favorite voices how did how did they know the song T-Bone played it for them they he played a lot of he brought I think all of his acquaintances and uh, to the table to figure out the songs, and um, which is one of the things he does best. You know, he's—I've seen him 
pull out, um, I think on that record he did pull out a song from, you know, several decades before that he remembered that he loved that he thought, ah, oh, this would be, you know, this would be great. Instead of who's the hottest writer in town, who's the most popular writer right now, right. you know. But it, it, uh, just hearing those songs and remembering those great songs that he's heard. Standing in my broken heart all night Darkness helped me like a friend when love wore off. Looking for the lamb that's hidden in the cross. The finder's love. You had indescribable wow, cruel inventions and martinis and bikinis. And it seemed, it felt like it was a real progression. Did, did it feel like that to you making those three records in a row? Uh, martinis and bikinis, I remember that being hard work, you know, and, uh, and T-Bone was certainly at the helm, worked really hard on that record. Um, he always had it. The other thing I learned in working with T-Bone over those records is that um, to have such an appreciation for somebody who really does know how to produce a record, because I've produced records. I know a lot of people who've produced records, but um, there's a certain gift and, and, and all of the producers, you know, that are great have different gifts, certainly. But, um, you know, he, he had a vision for martinis and bikinis and and also you know we were pressured at that time by the record companies to have hits to have a hit single so it's funny having to you know realize your vision but then uh, think of it in terms of other people listening to it you know which is usually the last thing I think of unless I'm writing to a certain person or thinking of a certain person when I'm singing or writing a song um, the world at large is always had me scratching my head and um but i think that that t-bone enlarged the um just the production scale for that record and it, it was a lot of work and again we weren't we were on you know tape we weren't we weren't um wasn't digital in those days so it was just it took more time and effort but um i, I remember being really tired at the end and thinking you know not really thinking that people would like it as much as they did. Did the songs, when you were writing them, sound to you like they ended up sounding, or did they really change in the studio? Something that's happened to me in most records is that I start off with a, you know, maybe half the album and um, that I feel good about, but, but I think the acid test is when you walk into the studio and you hear the musicians that you love playing it, um, does it, does it fly? I, I'm always trying to listen to it through their ears. What, how are they hearing it? And so um, that's a good test because a lot of things fall by the wayside and there were things that um, ended up not going on the record. Um, and, and that was, you know, Wheel of the Broken Voice and some of the darker ones um, in, in the beginning. And um, then it took a real turn the second half into, I think, what became, you know, the, the core of Martinis and Bikinis, the more pop um, songs. So um, it, it, yeah, it changes um, because I'm always, I never, I, I don't think I've ever gone in with a finished record it, it, during, and because the recording in those days used to take months, um, I had time to, to write more songs. And I loved that. I loved having that time to, to be able to figure out what was missing, how to fill in the gaps of an album. So I guess, yeah, the, I really, that 30 minute format, you know, for me in making an album was always, um, just very deep, deeply ingrained, you know, since my, I guess, 
when I was a little kid listening to my, you know, LPs. A song like I Need Love has sort of a, a beatle feel to it, if you don't. Is that something you were thinking of when you wrote the song or, or did it just kind of end up sounding that way because it has that kind of beatle sort of guitar sound and also just this very, you know, very nice, you know, melody and your know, compact you know, per- perfect pop songwriting. Well, it was interesting because I think uh, in, when I started off in music, started recording way back in the 80s with, with Leslie, you know, being Leslie, um, I think it was a little bit more about trying to fit into whatever, you know, to, to pop music at that time. And one of the transitions, one of the freedoms of making the transition to Sam and, and um, signing with Virgin America was that I, I felt I could just follow my muse would follow what I loved and um, I think for the first time I just unabashedly decided to to love that music that I heard when I was three that those those Beatle records that my brother had and just um, you know kind of write a, some love songs to the Beatles if if you will in a funny way and um, people liked it <laughs> well it's it, yeah it's a song that's a song that got played a lot on the radio here in Chicago um, and uh but it also is like it's 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 like it's a love song but it's also about faith and it it sort of ties together a lot of you know you're searching you know what you're searching for in life which is sort of meaning um whether it's you know religious faith you know personal love and and it's all that tied together in a really catchy three-minute pop song well i like to jump tracks lyrically um it just it um i have to i have to feel good about it enough to sing it you know and and to be entertained a little bit by it so to go and also again in my uh, very strange beginnings there was a you know there was a, a pressure to to preach or to to talk about uh, God or, or Christianity and um, you know in fact it was a weird world because I you know I was so young I was 1920 on the road singing for these people and um, it was expected that you would stay um, after the show and you would talk to anybody who wanted to in the audience and not only talk to them but actually be a counselor a spiritual guide to them and you know at 19 I I just didn't have that I I was a musician a songwriter a dreamer I did not have those answers for those people and and or or even myself and um, that I think is what ultimately, that is the question, or those are the questions that I could not answer and I had to, to stop doing that. You know, there was a particular experience that, that really drove that home for me um, when I met a, a very severely handicapped listener and um, trying to answer their questions about why. And um, it, was, it was difficult and painful and I, I didn't have the answers and um, and it was, I realized that uh, I was in this business all of a sudden where I was supposed to have all the answers at 19. It was ridiculous. It was completely insane. So that's part of why I, you know, moved on as well. It signed with a different label and started over. Do you find that you're still doing that kind of searching in your lyrics, music, you know, just sort of trying to get at like, well, what is, what are these bigger truths? And it's, it's sort of searching for meaning something that you're, you continue to do through your songwriting yeah ser- yeah searching for meaning um i th- i think searching for meaning minute by minute and by that i mean um getting older you know there on the last record i wrote a song that called um, i want to be you that uh, just the take of 
going on the internet and seeing all these beautiful people, I mean, you don't have to be old or young. Um, you might feel you, you're too young or you're too old, but it was just a, I thought it was a really funny response that, that probably most of us have, if we're honest, you know, about seeing all these people that are cooler, better, um, seemingly, and have it more together um, online. And um, so I, I think there's a, there's a search for um, making peace with myself and, and that old, you know, the old prayer, accepting what I, what I can't change, changing what I can, um, loving the people around you and, and trying to um, do all I can before time's up. And then you did Omnipop, uh, It's Only a Flesh Wound, Lamb Chop. And it, it felt like at the time to be this sort of deliberate sort of turning away from at least some of the stuff you've been doing. Like there are very few harmonies on that record, for instance. And I'm wondering, were you sort of, was it a conscious thing to say, okay, I'm going to do, make a right turn here? Or was that just where the music was for you at that point? Honestly, I think I pushed that record. I, I, I wish that I had not made that record, but if I hadn't uh, at that time, the the um, the whole record company did a a big revolution. It, um, it, it revolved uh, the executives revolved. So the people that were in charge with martinis and bikinis suddenly a bunch of other people came in and were were um, in charge and and things just kind of went haywire. A lot of people left the company right as Omnipop came out. So it was it was a big mess. I never ended up going on the road with it, and I wish that I had waited and not put it out um, because. I just it was a it was only two years in between after after uh, martinis and I it just I was going through a lot personally at that time and um, I think if I'd waited it would have been uh, much more interesting because what came after that was fan dance and right, right. my none such records I left Virgin Records and to me that was a really uh, wonderful transition and and I remember remember making Omnipop at the time thinking. I, not feeling like it was ill-fated, um, which I think it was, but but feeling like this is the end of this. I'm never going to really make records like this again. You know, in the big studio with all the people and the big budget, and this is not this is not going to be the way it's going to be anymore. I just had that feeling. Um, so I I don't know. It was just one of those weird things um, that, oops. Well, I put that out. <laughs> Although I like, I always liked Animals on Wheels. That's that's always been fun to perform, and that you know, that was my maybe my favorite song from that record. Um, yeah, and you, the lyrics in that one, you say famous is you sing famous is fast. You don't have to be talented or do good work to be smart. It's perfect for me, but every time I go after it, my my ideals run off with my heart. And I thought that was sort of a telling lyric, like maybe how you were wrestling with whatever was going on in terms of fame, celebrity, trying to, you know, get the next gold ring or whatever it is. Yeah, I think, oh boy, being a, uh, I certainly learned that being a solo female artist was not easy, not, not easy at all. It was, it's, uh, that, that was a strange experience in the, in the pop world. And, um, you know, I had a lot of fun on the road doing shows it was it was a wonderful time it was wonderful that uh, martinis and bikinis made the rounds and and um was heard by as many people as it was but uh, but yeah i don't i don't think i was ever meant to be um a pop person in that in that way and um 
and just by coincidentally dropping into the Gilmore Girls and, and doing that, um, you know, I found myself, I was much more comfortable being off camera. And though I, I love to perform, um, again, I, the songwriting really has my heart not not singing. There are a lot of great singers out there. One of them happens to be my child, who's very, mm. very talented, mm. who has quite an instrument. Um, and um, uh, we like to say that, you know, she has um, two parents and two step-parents and I, who are talented people, but I, I think that she has more talent than the four of us. You were in the third Die Hard movie, and you played a villain. Yes. And yeah. and then you didn't really act it that so much, except for like playing yourself in some stuff. But like, how did you become a villain in a Die Hard movie, and then not like like how did you end up doing that for one, and then two, not do a bunch of other stuff like that? Because you're really good. Oh, thank you. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I don't know. I felt like. Um... My friends who saw the movie, I kind of owed them the price of the ticket, and feel like it was I made them go see it because I was in it, and it, I don't think I was that good. You didn't talk, <laughs> but, but, but the director was certainly kind talk. and patient. Yes, thank <laughs> God. Uh, it was either a German accent or or silence, and thank God it was a you know it was silence. But the director had a very specific um, vision, which kind of it was interesting. He wanted um, he wanted Uta Lemper, who's gorgeous, you know, beautiful singer, because he wanted that. He want I think he wanted. Um, maybe her to sing the end title, some kind of a German thing because of the German um, villain that Jeremy Irons played. And um, so he kind of got into, he thought that, oh yeah, so a mute would be kind of funny. She's mute, but she sings the end title. And um, that never, I, I because Uta Lemper was pregnant at the time, uh, she couldn't do the film. And so for some reason, he thought I look like a terrorist. I look like a German terrorist. And um, I decided to accept because I'd never been in a movie. I thought that would be interesting, you know, be fun. And it was. It was really fun. I loved the cast and the crew. They were all wonderful people to, to be around. And it was fun to watch an action picture being made. Um, but it ended up that um, the, the song that I wrote for the end title, um, it was a, an idea that R.E.M. had sent to T-Bone to work on. And I grabbed it and, and wrote a song to it called Slapstick Heart. And I, I you know, it wasn't um, right for the end of the movie, but, um, you know, so the, the mute singing the end title, that, that didn't work out either. It ended up being a military version of When Johnny Comes Marching Home that the composer did. Um, but yeah, I don't, it's just a weird, it's weird, isn't it? It's a strange... It's, it's, it is disappointing when you have the opportunity to have the mute sing the song at the end title and then don't take advantage of that. I know, I know. And I, I do like that song, Slapstick Heart. I don't know if I, I of course, like m a lot of my recordings, I would re-record it. I would sing it differently, but, um, but I like that. And, and The know, last song on Omnipop, I think. Um, one of yeah, it was on, on Omnipop. So you're saying you, you, you would re-record that one, though? Well, I loved, I actually loved the production. I would re-sing it. I thought... I thought the uh, the figure, the guitar figure that T-Bone looped was really beautiful. Um, but yeah, the, the, it's strange to be cast as a, as a terrorist too, because I remember having to go to the shooting range to, to shoot a gun at a human figure, and I just did not, was not comfortable doing that, and um, did not like working with a gun at all, you know, with the blanks, and any of it, I, did, I was really uncomfortable. So it's very funny that somebody like me would be 
cast as a terrorist, but uh, the magic of movies, they can make you seem like you are really terror, terror, uh, terrorizing people. Were you approached to do other movies after that, like Van Damme movies or something, or just like an indie drama? No, I did a, I did a, a little cameo in uh, Vin Vendor's uh, The End of Violence, which right. I was doing my, I sang Animals on Wheels at a little, supposedly a poetry reading. Um, but no, I, I acting be, again. I thought there was a lot of upkeep to it. It was tedious, and I, I, I didn't want to. I felt like I'd really have to go to school and learn it. You know, I, I didn't feel that I was. Um, I had enough um, knowledge to be able to actually take gigs away from you know hardworking actors. <laughs> you, you might have had spoken lines in the next one, so. I know, though. I, yeah, I, I'm sad that I didn't even get to speak lines, but I, you know. That's okay. That's okay. Fan dance was this this other sort of pivot, and and it's a, a it's a wonderful album, and it's but it's very sort of stripped down, and has this kind of intimate feel that I think most of your stuff has had since then too. What was your thinking in terms of like how you changed direction on that? I wonder. I wonder about that. Why I I did that. I I think at the time. Um, I think both T-Bone and I were exhausted of, uh, we had done, you know, those records, those pop records, and, and basically with the same process every time, just, you know, with different songs, and and, um, and I think we were tired of making records that way, as I remember, and plus I uh, got pregnant and took a year off, and um, and that was, a, that was a very, that was a, a big game changer, a life changer for me, that was a whole other um, thing. Uh, so, I don't know. Just, just a wasn't really premeditated. Um, but the other thing was, Nonesuch was a very different label from Virgin America. They said up front they didn't do um, radio promotion. They weren't, they weren't going to do a lot of marketing. It was a very lo-fi situation. It was just, you know, make us something interesting. You know, so it was a different. There was a different kind of. Uh, it was different on the business side of things too. Do you feel like your writing changed at that point or was it more just a matter of how you arranged and recorded things? I think my writing was changing um, after, because, you know, after Omnipop, after I didn't tour, um, I was traveling uh, with T-Bone. He was doing projects all over the country and, and we were just, you know, living in hotels and, and um, I would write by myself in hotels and, um, yeah, things things were were changing at that point, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm just happy that I, I didn't get into a situation that I see a lot of people that I love in, which is that they uh, they had a hit, and then they had to sing that hit for, you know, 50 years, 20 years, you know, it's always about that one hit, um, nothing that they do after that really matters. Um, or they're they're trying to write things like that hit so that you know and that boxes them in and I'm thankful that I felt that I've always felt I've always had the freedom to um, do what I've wanted to do. Well, and in your stripping down the the accompaniment, I feel like also the singing changed to some extent that that you and I used this word before, but there was something very intimate about these records and and your voice kind of 
sounding like you're in the room with people. Whereas, you know, maybe on Indescribable Wow, it was a little bit, you know, more, you know, amid a lot of other stuff going on. Yeah, you know, that's that's another thing too. I, I think after Martinis, the, a lot of the touring that I did um, with Martinis and Bikinis was done with a full band and, um, and, and Cruel Inventions as well. And I, I felt so often I was screaming over the band, singing over the band or trying to. And um, that's one of the, the things that I, I really wanted to change because at the end of Martinis and Bikinis, at the end of our touring, um, I was just playing with a drummer and, and T-Bone was playing guitar. And those were some of my favorite shows um, at the very end, Unplugged, if you will. I, maybe it was right when Unplugged MTV started, you know, but it was just nice to have that, that shift, that change, and to, to do something you know, more intimate and more quiet. So that definitely um, affected, you know, writing Fan Dance and, and, and Boot and a Shoe, doing that a quieter thing. Because with Boot and a Shoe, touring for that record, I didn't even have a bass player and often was just playing guitar and singing on one mic. Um, you know, kind of Americana, except just not the right material <laughs> for America. Do you like singing in that sort of more low-key manner as well like like sort of less of belting and more of i keep saying the more sort of intimate tones of the way you're singing well, on these maybe, records maybe more understated um yeah. maybe being the straight man a little more dry because you know some of the songs had a little smile in them you know um help is coming one day late you know which which by the way I wrote that completely sincerely from a very dark place, and the first time I performed it in front of an audience, the audience started laughing out loud, and I that was such a great experience, and I, I was delighted, and um, th because I could hear the song in a different way, and also one of my favorite moments was when I was touring with David Byrne, opening for him, and and he wanted to introduce me one night, and he walked out on stage and started singing one day late. Mm -hmm. You know, because he liked the song and and <laughs> wanted to sing it for people before he brought me on, and um, that was a great compliment. So, and I and I really I do appreciate a little a little bit of humor, you know, in um, in music, and that I think is what I'm seeing from my my child. Uh, they are they have a very funny sense of humor and are are um, putting that into the music and I, I we sure need a lot of that because I, I think especially coming from being a singer-songwriter and, and hearing an awful lot of other singer-songwriters um, it, it gets so serious sometimes and it it's, um, doesn't doesn't need to be. When early in the pandemic I started putting on Facebook and I think Twitter like every day I would just sort of put up song of the morning and it usually was some reaction to whatever crazy thing was happening that day because back because you know, the news was changing every day and one of the early ones that I put up was one day late because I felt like that was the response to the pandemic was that nobody was doing anything and help is coming one day late so yeah yeah so I was being funny but not well that does come from an old uh, gospel saying that um, God may not come when you want him but he's always on time so there's an element of you know faith in that but um, but also I'm I'm glad that um, I'm glad it made people smile or laugh. I love that I love that on Fan Dance you have a song that doesn't really have lyrics and you called it "Is That Your Zebra?" <laughs> yeah, because if you're gonna title it something, sometimes I just get tired of writing lyrics and and um, so that was a I just thought why not? So a boot and a shoe was the last one that the T Bone produced and then you've produced them ever since. 
Uh, how much of a shift was that for you? I mean, you've obviously been involved in the record making pretty intimately up to that point, but you know, how much do you feel like things have changed in terms of your approach to you know making records now that you're also producing them? Oh, that's a hard. Um, it's it's just it's just such a lot of um, it was a lot of growing. I mean, I, I felt in in some ways, if I can't produce my own records at this point after having uh, worked with T-Bone for such a long time, um, then I haven't learned anything. So I, I should be able to do that. But you know, uh, of course. Um, He's one of my favorite people, one of my favorite musicians. I think he's so talented, and I just, I always had an absolute blast working with T-Bone. And so I, I you know, I miss that. But, um, but you know, it was time for me to take the reins. And, and I also had um, a wonderful band that I've been working with now for 20 years. Um, uh, two bands, actually. Um, you know, rhythm section with Jennifer Condos and on bass and Jay Bellarose playing drums and also the section quartet, uh, my husband's quartet um, that he arranges for and plays with on sessions and live and um, and um, and then occasionally Patrick Warren, you know, playing keyboards. So I, these people that I feel like I have a shorthand with and have played with for such a long time, um, that's, a, that's a whole different kind of production. It's a, more a, a band doing a record rather than, you know, a solo artist bringing in, um, you know, people from all over. Um, I, on this latest record that I'm working on, um, Mark Rebo, makes an appearance on guitar and I've, I've missed him. I, I haven't really worked with Mark for a while. So um, that's really wonderful. But it, yeah, it's, um, it's different. It's, it's just completely different. You know, I, I loved what I did with T-Bone. I, I love what I'm doing now. Um, and I, I hope to, to grow and, and get a few more uh, stages in my, <laughs> in my writing, in my production um, before it's time to say goodbye. Are you working on a new album right now? I am. I, you know, I was holed up with a, a, a string arranger and a wonderful violinist and during the pandemic, so we, it's, it's primarily um, a lot of strings. It's a lot of strings. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm excited about that because that, knowing that going into the writing, um, not only that strings might be a part of the arrangement or you know one aspect of it but really thinking of the album in that conceptually that way was was really great the um the challenge has been to um to write within you know that weird shutdown pandemic time and 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 try to to um make it current but but not uh, not only of that time to try to tap into um the past, I, I actually tapped into the past a lot writing this record because to get me out of that weird limbo that we were all in, because it, I thought that was a very restrictive, strange place to be in. So I felt, um, because I couldn't travel physically, I felt like I had to really time travel and, and travel in my mind to other places and to um, to other times with, with people that I wasn't seeing. Um, hadn't seen in a long time, you know, like all of us. So it was a really interesting, but I, I felt, I, I thought it was a challenging obstruction. It, it's a little interesting, or it's a little difficult um, finishing the record right now. I've got a, a, like maybe one more song to write because I, again, I don't want to make it, I don't want it to be the pandemic record. 
you know, I never wanted it to be that. We'll see what happens. But but I definitely think it was interesting. I, I think some I've heard some interesting and good music that's come out of the pandemic. But um, yeah, I hope we don't have to go through that again. Were you time traveling to a particular period, or was it just in general you were sort of drawing on things from the past? In general, I think I think because of the um, limited uh, social interaction, it just you know, memories and, and things came up from my life. Um, and I let them, I just decided to kind of process them and let it, let that, that uh, memory real roll, just to, to take a look at it and, and to write down things to, and, um, and I, it was good. It was a good thing. There was a period where you doing you did some sort of digital EPs, but mostly you've done albums. Do you still think of the album as like the primary, you know, form of you know collecting this music? I think so. Yeah, I did the long play, which was a, a digital um, music and art project that basically it was um, a subscription based project where um, I would I was going to write and record 50 songs and and release them in small batches little EPs over the course of a year which ended up being a little bit more than a year but it was it was fun I I've, I really had to write fast and do more um, the production was more of a sketch than a full painting and um, it was that was fun, but but you know it was also something that I felt like I couldn't sustain. I couldn't keep on working that way, and I I just wanted to do that because I had the freedom to do that at at, at that point. Um, but yeah, I do I do feel again I would like to um, distill have the my music distilled as much as possible. I, maybe because I'm you know I'm on the other side of my career, I, I'm wanting to get it. You know, just more and more, just tighten it up, and um, and make it more succinct. And I think that again, that album format is such a natural format for me. And um, and and I've landed there again on this last one. And I, that's not to say that I won't do something completely different beyond that. But but this certainly will be an album. Yeah, there was a while where a lot of people seemed to be sort of dismissing the album. I'm like, no, I still listen to albums. Keep doing albums. Yeah, I well, I think. People want physical things. I think. I think. Um, I know. I miss the physical album. You know, and, and CDs weren't just weren't the greatest. Um, nor were cassettes. Uh, so um, you know, I, I think the albums are are here for a little while. But I also love um, the visual aspect of you know music to picture, and I I've wanted to do some you know more of that. I think that's a really interesting way to, um, I love that about social media that you can see videos or live performances of albums before they come out of the singles or what, the songs that they, people want to release before that. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's probably just a little bit of everything, but as long as there is, you know, that, uh, you know, album at, at the at the just the base of everything I think that's the base of a tour the base of a you know um, visual project promotion I think um, that's the the anchor is the album I guess is what I'm trying to say 
Yeah, I find myself repurchasing albums that I'd only had on CD. And one of them was, I got the Newberry Comics. I think it was the white vinyl version of Martinis and Bikinis. So it's a double record. And I could put it on and have the needle drop and make that needle drop sound. And then it starts playing and it's pretty cool. Yeah, because Martinis did not come out on vinyl at the time. It was... um, they made they made vinyl flats to put up in you know the record stores, but they didn't. Um, it came out on CD only. Right. So that was really fun being able to, um, and the artist that actually did the that beautiful package, Jeff Kern, is just he's so wonderful, and um, he was lovely to to um, give his permission to to dig up some things to put on the the beautiful you know gatefold. Do you have any idea when the new album's going to come out? I have no idea. Um, we're we're just finishing in the next few months, so after that, I have no idea if I will be with a label, if I'll put it out independently, or um, just, I don't know. I haven't thought that far. I'm trying not to think that far, and that was one of the things that I did like about the pandemic. I felt when everything shut down, um, it just... That was sort of that was that was all, all that stuff was closed down. The business was kind of closed down, and and um, I like that out of sight, out of mind feeling. It, it made me just feel again more free to do whatever I wanted, not having the restrictions of you gotta, you know, do it this way with a manager, with an agent, with a, you know, record label, with a publicist, you know, the same old, same old. And because I think you know at this stage. I'm I'm probably one of my jobs is to push things a little bit in a different direction um, as much as I can. So whether that's the way of releasing music or um, or the music itself, I just need to push a little bit, uh, keep it interesting. Um, because honestly, I think I feel uh, really lucky to be. I am 60, and I feel so lucky to be 60 and still making music. And I also feel that, you know, um, all the babies that are starting out, they need to see some kind of future. They need to see artists. Like I, I know, uh, you know, Mavis Staples is just one of my all-time heroes, and I, mm. I absolutely adore Bonnie Raitt. I feel that there are these um, Roseanne Cash. There are these. Uh, heroines to me that um, the fact that they're still singing they're they've just gotten better in my mind uh, better and better and and even Bob Dylan I loved how he just became a blues musician and just kept going on the road and making albums and, and singing and performing and I just I love that I think that there's a real beauty in the continuity of that and um, sticking with it for so long so um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see how long I can go. I, I hope I hope I've got a long time left. I hope I can be a very, very old person making music someday. Do you have like a favorite instrument? Is there something that you like a guitar you've had forever that you write on or? No, I, I just my head is in the clouds really. I'm in a, a different place when I'm writing, so it's there's no particular instrument like I said it can it can be on piano or guitar which are the instruments that I play um, but it can also be listening to my drummer play drums or it can be in the car just thinking of a lyric or just uh, you know a melody coming to me so there's no particular there's no like one guitar you have like especially this you know sentimental attachment to or anything like that no I maybe that's because I'm not a great guitar player um, but I I do I think I'm a, a pretty solid rhythm guitar player but um, no I, I'm not I mean I, I, I don't have very many guitars um, but there are much nicer guitars that I've played and that I've heard 
So, but I, you know, I think my my ex-husband has all of them, <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's okay because he's a good guitar player. I love it. Compare the the role that music plays in your life now to when you were younger. Do they mean sort of similar things, or is it something different at this point? Oh, that's interesting. I want to know your answer. I'll give it to you after you. I want to ask you that. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think I'm more particular, probably, about music than I was when I was a kid. Um, about what I want to listen to, and I, there's just so much more music to listen to. But I'm still chasing that um, that euphoric feeling. You know, when I when I hear music, and, and a lot of times these days it's in um, you know more classical or even sometimes the avant-garde. Um, you know, there's a there's a woman who's a a composer um, named uh, Mika Levy, and she's just the most beautiful. She's such a wonderful uh, composer. She did the the music for Jackie, um, that was nominated for an Academy Award, and she's done other films. Um, but that kind of stuff, I, I, I feel um, I just want to be moved and transported by music. I'm not, I don't think that's very different from when I was a kid, but I think I was also listening to try to figure out how to make that kind of music, you know, back then and analyzing music more maybe instead of just um, feeling that wonderful high from it. I, I love that, the, the idea, the euphoric feeling you get. I'm, you know, for a while, I think I'd maybe given up looking for it. And then I'm like, oh, no, I still really want that. And it still is really meaningful to me. And um, so, so yeah, if I, if I was going to answer a question, which I don't, uh, I, yeah, I would say when I was younger, I mean, it's funny, my daughter used to ask me, like, well, what did you do when I was my, you were my age? And it's like in junior high. And I'd be like, I'd sit in my room and listen to records. And then I'd sort of like read along with the lyrics. But then I decided that reading along with the lyrics was changing my sh idea of the shape of the song. So I had to quit doing that because I didn't want to picture the, the lyrics on the back cover when I was listening. I mean, I was total nerd on this stuff. But but I really would like listen to stuff so much that it was in my bones. So And I pr listened pretty obsessively for a pretty long time. And then when I had, you know, got older and had kids and was, was doing a lot of stuff and, you know, seen a lot of movies and writing about that as well as music. Um, I was sort of less up on things and I was less up on new music. And then I feel like another shift happened when the pandemic hit and I wasn't going out to do all this stuff and I wasn't going to, to see bands and I bought a new turntable and I started, you know, just like, like, and records were back and I started finding old records for it. And I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm getting some new stuff, but I'm also realizing that a lot of the 70s soul that I liked then is really, really good in a way that I didn't oh. appreciate when I was younger. And so then I'd be yeah. like, okay, now I was going to those deep dig. Yeah. So, I'm, so, I'm, so I'm trying to sort of discover all that, like those, those older feelings I had with music, even though sometimes I'm going back in time to discover the music and then trying to find, you know, stuff that's new that I really like as well, even though it's different a lot of the time. Yeah, I, I think, um, and that's, there was a trend towards that. Maybe, maybe it came from the, the contest singing shows, which I'm not a fan of, but maybe one of the bright sides is that they, they pulled out a lot of old music that, you know, sometimes you've heard it so much on the radio that you, you can't hear it anymore. Um, but I know that um, m my child found, um, you know, Betty Davis, who's married to my- Right, I just discovered that and, myself. Wow. I got those a, three records, they're crazy. Yeah. Yeah, she's just incredible. Um, but but you know that it's it, it is great to maybe maybe there's something too about putting on a record just the the sort of 
just the, the vibe different. of it in a, a home. Different. I know that during the pandemic, we had some lovely dinners. We'd make dinner and have a very leisurely dinner because what else are we going to do? And and put on a couple of records and listen to them during dinner. And it was really beautiful. And I, I think that maybe it's, again, that focus that we did have when we were kids where you had to sit at your, you know, in front of your speakers and listen to a record as opposed to, you know, having a Walkman or, you know, um, you could listen on the radio. It's different on AirPods. It's it's just it's coming out of a speaker in a room is different from putting your AirPods on. It just is. I agree. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and that's live too. That that vibration that's hitting, you know, the rest of your body, just not just your ears, but that vibration that's hitting the everything. You know, it's there's nothing like it. It's you know so interesting. I guess we could talk about that. We could we could definitely nerd out on that all day. I'd love to know Absolutely. all the science of you know that how how music affects us um but i know singing i know one thing also i feel very lucky about is it, singing is so good for you just like of course dancing and that was dancing was my first exposure to music really i started dancing taking dancing lessons when i was three and dancing to music you know makes you listen to it a little bit more or makes you feel it more makes you listen to it differently and um i think that that's where i develop my sense of rhythm you know through dance and um, it's always been very important to me. And uh, I, I think it's a, and it's also, the, the drawback was that I think it overdeveloped my ear. It made it harder for me to learn music, you know, because my ear to this day is so much faster than my, you know, than my eye or than my fingers. Hmm. I saw you live, I think it must have been on the Martinis and Bikinis tour. It was at the Park West in Chicago. I think it would have been on that tour. And I remember actually that that you stood very still while you sang. That there was sort of all this energy around you of the you know, all the instruments, but it, it's not like you were like you weren't using your, you know, dance moves that you learned when you were three while you were singing. You were just like it was like this very sort of it was almost like this sort of distilled, like it was just coming out in your voice. And everything all the energy was concentrated on that. And it was and it was fascinating. I mean, it was a wonderful performance, but I also remember that sense of stillness from you that sort of made you kind of lean into it a little bit more like you weren't performing you were just you were you know Im embodying it that was yeah and that was a choice um and i think that is was was especially well suited to um maybe not so much to martini bikini that that uh you know that band or that presentation but i think when it came down to um, boot and shoe or, or fan dance, I think it was that stillness was much more suited to that. And I, because I, I did feel it was going to be one or the other. It was either going to be, you know, I was going to be dancing or doing something, uh, a lot of movement or or nothing at all. And I felt that nothing at all was was better, a better choice. Um, but I I envy those that you know, or all uh, Kate Bush or, you know, all the people that are all over the place and, and with their choreography and, and the trapeze hanging from the trapeze and all that. It just looks like so much fun. Um, <laughs> and I missed out on a lot of the fun, but, um, but I did, I did like it. And I loved connecting with the audience that way or, or who I could see, you know, with my eyes, that was always, I love that connection because uh, most people would stare right back and it was really fun. A little bit like, you know, Marina Abramovich doing her, you know, her thing, really staring people down and having, you know, eye to eye contact. Well, yeah, because there's a lot of singers who are sort of acting out the song. Um, and, uh, 
you, you know, whereas, whereas with you, I felt like you were sort of feeling the song and there was different. And someone like Michael Stipe, I remember seeing R.E.M. like on the Murmur tour and like the first few tours and had long hair and he's just kind of like pulling the, the microphone stand all over the place and his eyes are rolling up in the back of his head. And it seemed like a very unconscious sort of way of presenting it. And it was, it was fascinating. And then later he was sort of more kind of presenting it to you. Like there was a way of like, he was sort of, there was a little bit more of a performance aspect to it. And then after a while, he was just sort of standing still. Cause I think he was like, no, it's about the voice, but he sort of like yeah. a lot of singers go through these different sort of phases where, you know, like David Burns started off just being like, what? In, you oh, know, and, yeah. and then later it was like, you know, here's the big suit. So he was aware of the fact that he was putting on a performance and those were still fantastic shows, but it was different. Yeah. We're just nerding out right now. So I know, I know. And then there's a whole other aspect of the, you know, I watched um, the U2s do their thing and, and Bono do his thing. And that, that was a whole other thing, you know, filling up a, a big venue, uh, filling up a big stadium and the way he performed or the, the Rolling Stones. I saw the Rolling Stones in, in um, 1994 in, in Washington in DC. And um, we were there actually to see the Counting Crows open for them, <laughs> which I would never want to do. but. Um, <laughs> But the even in 1994, the Stones were just massive. They were, it, it was it was truly an amazing performance to watch. And I'm not a fan of um, necessarily of of big shows, of rock shows, um, or of I mean, yeah, would I like to see the Rolling Stones in a tiny club? Yes, yes, I would. I'd prefer that. I really would. But there is something about being able to master the stadium, something that size, um, with the help of you know, screens and lights and, and all that, um, that it's, it's, that's, that's wonderful too. But, um, I feel like there's a lot more room for, um, performers to do more intimate things. And I have worked a lot at, um, the Largo, Largo at the Coronet. It's a, a small theater, the Coronet Theater in Los Angeles. It was, um, where they did plays for years and Rogers and Hammerstein, uh, wrote their, a lot of their musicals um, in the office upstairs, and it's a beautiful little 300-seat theater. And um, the um, the manager, Mr. Flanagan, Mark Flanagan, um, does a lot of combination shows. So he's doing comedians and musicians, um, some little performance pieces. Um, there's a Shakespeare company that turns Shakespeare on its side, on his side. Um, so it, it, I like that kind of stuff. I like that the intimacy of that has always really appealed to me, the smaller places. And, and at the end of my Martinis and Bikinis tour, um, when I scaled down to just a drummer and a guitar player, I know my managers were ready to kill me because they, they wanted, no, 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 you're supposed to get, you're supposed to play bigger places, not smaller places as you go along, you know? And that's that's the other thing. I, I felt that I didn't want to do that. I, I, Maybe it was in, in watching Bono a lot that I felt that it just, that wasn't my medium, that, that I wasn't going to be able to do, that just wasn't my thing, you know. I wanted to do a more intimate thing, that I wanted to write different songs and, and play in smaller places. Do you just play, you know, one-off shows in L.A. every once in a while at a place like Largo or something like that? Or do you sort of wait to have like a tour and an album to do any live shows? I have I have just been you know doing less and less live and and yes doing things around Los Angeles lately because um, you know I, the last decade I did do um, some some music for television so um, and I was finishing up the you know raising my child 
so who's now all they're all done they're all all grown up um, wow. but it's you know and and there were other family issues too so um but i don't i don't live i've i've never that's never been my favorite part of it i love the production although i i do I do want to go out and play live. I've I've missed it. Uh, you know, I like to to not do it for a long time and then and then start up again. <laughs> you don't like sneak into some open mic night and just sort of say, "Hey, I'm just going to try out a song here, people." I should. That's a good idea. I think I will. I think I'll do that. It'd be like the comedian showing up and you know you could bump someone just to that would be the LH way to do it is show up late and make someone bump someone because you're like because yeah. you're more. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, and I look forward to hearing your your new music when it's ready to go and seeing you if you come back to Chicago or in Los oh, Angeles or, yeah, or whatever. Love, so love to come back to Chicago. That's that's one of the best music towns, as you know. Is, is your child's music findable anywhere, by the way? Yes. Um, they are just finishing a record. Um, actually, um, there there are a couple of recordings out there. Um, when they were very young, they they did um, the end title to one of the True Detective. Um, I guess the was it the first it was the first True Detective, The mm-hmm. Angry River with Father John Misty. That was really beautiful. I think it was a. Um, they were maybe fourteen at that point, and um, and T Bone wanted because of the you know just the, the young girls that were murdered, just the horrible th- kind of wanted that voice, that innocent voice on that the last track, on that song. Um, so they did that, um, but then they have, they're morphing into a whole other, um, you know, basically my child is a, a theater kid that, um, so there's a, a theatrical, you know, punk thing to what they're doing. And um, they are, their character at this point is called da- Dagger Polyester. So, um, and they'll be releasing music very soon. It's, it's great to pass along the, the musical artistic genes. So. Well, it's it's nice that that Dagger went their own way, um, did not get on the Americana train of their dads, did not, um, you know, follow in a, a singer songwriter type thing. Although they do write their own songs and, and sing them, but it's you know, it's again more theatrical and definitely with a sense of humor. Do they record uh, instruments as well? I mean, is there like sort of an electronic thing or? Yeah. Yeah, um, they're, they play multiple instruments and, um, and do all the vocals. And, and I think Will may follow, you know, in their dad's steps of, of producing because uh, there's a whole, um, the, the arrangements are usually there in their writing and, and a lot of the visual um, presentation as well. So it's, it's a whole other thing, very, very different from what I do, very different from... Uh, what their dad has done. So, have you been inspired or influenced by any of this? You know, right before the shutdown, I saw a, a show. My husband and 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 t- a musician and a, and a producer. We we all went to to see um, Dagger at their show, and um, wasn't a big crowd. It was a rainy night in February, and it was. I got that euphoric feeling, um, not because this is my child or relative but i felt that the show and all of us did you know the 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 four people that were there the four adults standing in the back we just got this feeling that something really uh big was happening something really amazing musically was happening i can't it was hard to describe um so 
I don't know. We'll see where it goes. But it was, it's, there is definitely something interesting there. And I think there are a lot of other bands kind of in that sort of, I wouldn't say exactly retro genre, but that more theatrical um, glam rock punk, uh, maybe even a meatloaf place, you know, <laughs> in that in that kind of area. So I'm I'm very excited. Anytime I see something new coming up and I feel that excitement, I I'm I'm glad for that because God knows we need a little we need something new. That's it for episode twenty five of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Sam Phillips for being so generous with her time and insights and for having given us so much wonderful music. Go to her website, samphillips.com, where you can buy her music, including her latest album, Cold Dark Night, as well as personalized merch. Keep an eye and ear out for her upcoming album as well. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake who brings an indescribable wow to everything he does. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and at Caropop1. Also, visit the Caropop website, caropop.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and this Caropop podcast. Thanks.